morning, church. We invite you this morning to fight our battles together with praise and thanksgiving, calling on the powerful name of God. Let's sing these words from Psalm 23. There's a team.
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 56 through 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord.
some way that God has come through for you, your family, maybe even this morning. Would you just lift up a shout of praise to him right now, church? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you.
And Lord, we just come before your presence with thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for sending your one and only son to save us, God. We are grateful. And I was a wretch. I remember who I was. I was lost. I was blind. And I was running out of time. And sin separated. The breach was far too wide. But from the far side of the castle, you held me in your sights. So you made a way across a great divide. Left behind heaven's road to build it here inside. And there at the cross, you paid the day. Chase freed my soul, and for the first time, I had hope. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood of life. Thank you, Jesus, it has washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved
Hey, good morning. Welcome to Camarillo Community Church. Uh, if you're new to us, uh, you don't know me. My name is David Hurtado. I don't know, maybe you saw a, um, a advertisement on social media that we've been doing lately and you decided to check us out. Maybe you're watching it for the first time online. Welcome to all of you. We're so glad that you are here. I have to say before we get started today that, uh, you know, the first five weeks of the NFL football season, nobody wanted to talk football around here. And uh, in the last two weeks, all anybody wants to talk about is football. And, uh, and I just want to remind you that football is a topic for the afternoon, okay? Morning time is all about Jesus. So, you know, we're not a Jersey church. Well, actually, actually, we're going to do next year, I, I thought of an idea. We're going to do a Jersey Sunday, and then we're going to have Jersey mics afterwards. Wouldn't that be cool? That'd be dope, right? You only get a sandwich if you bring a Jersey. Uh, that's what we're doing next year just to celebrate. But anyway, uh, so leave that football stuff for another time. This is Jesus time. This is God time. We're a Bible church, all right? So that's who we are. Uh, welcome, welcome. We're glad you're here. If you don't know, you should know that on Tuesday, I believe it's Tuesday, it's Halloween. We celebrate that around here by doing Trunk or Treat. We actually have taken a couple years off for various different reasons, but we're bringing it back this year. We're super excited about it. We've got like 40 trunks. It's like more than we've ever had before. Uh, there is still an opportunity for you to come and serve if you'd like to. Be with me. I'll be in costume with a flashlight, checking every bag providing a safe environment for our families and our neighborhood, just our ways of saying, hey, uh, bring your children, be safe here, have some candy, enjoy it on us, and who knows what kind of relationships can develop uh, between that and them coming to our church. And so if you want to be a part of that, please uh, see Sam afterwards, and she'll sign you up uh, on the patio. But more importantly than that, would you come? Bring your kids yourselves uh, if you have plans, you know, for doing church treating, stop by here and, uh, and, and be a part of it. And then let your friends and family know about this as well. Hey, my church is doing this trunk or treat thing. It'll be safe. I know they're checking every bag, uh, those type of things. We just want to be a light to our community and serve our community best we can. So that's this Tuesday, right? Or is it Monday? Or is it Wednesday? Tuesday. Tuesday, everybody. Uh, Halloween, come trunk or treat. It's going to be an awesome time. My wife is probably going to win the belt because she uh, always tries to win the, the trunk, the best trunk. And remember, the kids decide the best trunk, uh, so make sure you're thinking about that. All right, today I would like to talk to you about passing the test. Our topic at hand today will be passing the test. And I, and I think to myself, back to my high school years, and the length by which we would go to as students to pass a test. Do you remember what kind of things you did in order to ensure, assure yourself that you will pass a test, the lengths at which you went through? I think I've mentioned to the church before that I didn't become a Christian until I was a sophomore in high school. And so, yeah, this is going to be kind of one of those illustrations. I went to a private school. Um, uh, my mom had sent us to a private school in our area, but it's probably not what you're thinking of. She, she sent us there because the local public high school had metal detectors where every student would have to walk through every day so they could assure themselves of a weapon-free environment. So my mom said, uh, rather than investing in a home, I'm going to invest in my kid's education as a single-parent mom. And thank you, parents out there who make so many sacrifices for your children. Um, they may come back and look at that in 30 years and really appreciate you for it. But don't get it twisted. It was a private school in the hood. <laughs> uh, and whatever you might think to probably was the case. 
And there was great lengths that we would go to to pass a test in that school. In fact, they had quite a reputation for the great lengths that you would go through to pass a test. For instance, there were hand signals that you would put on your desk for Scantron tests. There'd be a different hand signal for A, B, C, or D, so that multiple people around you could, could know what the answer was to the test. In Spanish 1, in my freshman year, um, I can neither confirm or deny that students that were bilingual would, would uh, switch their tests around. And so your test would come over here, and then all of a sudden you'd write in all the answers, and now that one's done here, then another one come. And, and literally there was so much passing of the test that when you, when you would go to drop off your test at the end of the period, you would drop off somebody else's test. Everybody in the class had somebody else's test. They're just switching and going forth, and uh, teacher never wondered why it was all the same feminship on all the tests. But literally was passed around that. The only class you couldn't cheat in would be math because they required you to, to show your work. So that was one assured that you could not cheat in. Now, I'm just going to give you a transparency warning here, vulnerability warning here. I don't like to think of my pastor this way. I'm sorry. We're going to go there. I remember there was one class where I was literally caught by the teacher looking over my friend's shoulder, peering over his shoulder, because there was one question I didn't know the answer to on the test. What's worse is it was my fourth period class, religion. And my teacher had just finished graduate studies in a Catholic seminary, was just coming out of a lengthy time of deep consideration of whether or not they wanted to become a priest or not. I'll never forget his eye looking at me as I'm peering over the shoulder of my friend's test. I will say he gave me grace, which is kind of appropriate. Religion class, you know, priest. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get in trouble. But I, I never again cheated in that class because I didn't like the feeling that it made me feel the lengths at which we would go to to pass a test. You know, I did, interestingly enough, become a Christian my sophomore year of high school. So that was my freshman year. Early sophomore year, around this time, October time, I came to know the Lord. Jesus Christ had become my Lord and Savior. You can imagine going back to school in that environment where all these kids, you know, end up going to UCs and stuff, but they're all involved in this massive, you know, you know cheat gate type of a situation. And then I'm sitting there and somebody's saying that I've grown up with, hey, what'd you get for number six? Uh, I'm sorry, I don't do that anymore. What? You know how many times I helped you? Yeah, I know, that makes us a little awkward. But I don't do that anymore. I, I can't believe you're doing this, man. I, can't, I will never, ever, ever help you again. That's okay, because I ain't doing this anymore. So you don't have to worry about that. You can imagine the awkwardness that goes around but I just couldn't do it again. Um, for those of you guys who are young people in high school, if you want to follow the way of Jesus, you just can no longer cheat anymore. You just got to know that. Uh, at some point, I said, I, I just can't do that anymore. Well, let me ask you this. If life is the test, if life is the test, are you passing? Are you cheating? How do you even know if you're passing? How do you know if you're cheating? 
Believe it or not, just like you can cheat on the test, you can cheat at life, and today we're going to explore what it looks like to pass the test of life. How do you know if you're passing? How do you know if you're not? What does passing look like? What is characteristic of not making the grade? What motivational values are congruent with winning in this endeavor? How does your desire for self-preservation affect your ability to win? For that, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Hold your Bible up in the air or your phone if you're going to use it. Absolutely great. Hold it up and uh, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 20 together. We want to be people in a church. We open up our Bibles, let the Word of God saturate like a waterfall over our lives and change us from the inside out. That's our heart and desire. If you don't have a Bible, we want to give you your first one before you leave today at the welcome counter. Just go say, hey, Pastor, so I have a Bible. They will give you your very first leather found Bible. We want to give that as a gift to you. We want everybody to have a copy of the Word of God. So go to 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you're new to this whole religious thing, first couple of pages is this thing called an index. It'll tell you what page in your Bible uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20 is. It'll be different than mine because depending on the size of print and all that kind of stuff. But get there, 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're looking at verses 24 through 42 today. 24 to 42, chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. Uh, overarching question today is how can you know if you pass the test of faithfulness in your life? How can you know if you're passing the test of faithfulness? In your life? How do you know if you pass the test of faithfulness in your life? First thing, you'll know if you don't value position over people. If you don't value position over person, you could say. And we'll define that a little bit more. But if you don't have the value system where you value position, place over person, and so for that, let's look at uh, verses 24 through 33 together. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat to eat food. And the king sat in his seat as in other times, and on the seat by the wall. And then Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat to Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely it's because he's not clean. That's why he's not here. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty again. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul. David earnestly asked, leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. And Saul's anger kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. And so Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Let's stop there. How can you know if you pass the test of faithfulness in your life, the first indicator might be if you don't value, if you don't value position over people. 
position or place over people or person. When you say, my position is more important to me than this individual is, you can know that you are not passing the test. Now, to put this in context, if you remember last week, David and Jonathan come together with a plan. David's very, very concerned that uh, Jonathan's father, Saul, is trying to kill him. In fact, he sent three parties to try to kill him. That didn't work. God came over them in a worshipful state to thwart them in their plans. And then Saul himself came to kill him, and then God put him in a worshipful state to thwart him of his plans. But David doesn't want to leave without leaving in an honorable way. He doesn't want his best friend Jonathan to think that he did anything dishonorable. He left the king's court without having reason to. So he goes back to Jonathan. And, okay, can we work this out? And Jonathan says, like, you're fine. There's no problems here at all. I would know he's my dad. He doesn't do anything in this kingdom without telling me. And David's like, well, that's ironic because he's trying to kill me. And so David and Jonathan come up with this plan. Here's what we'll do. I will be away from the king during some certain important ceremonies of the new moon. It's a mark of a new calendar going from January to February or February to March, that type of thing. They would do a festival and the king would preside over that festival. First day was a very religious day, second day. And they would keep on going until they saw the moon. And it'd be kind of like an omen type of thing if it happened at a certain time and whatnot. But the king would preside over that and the king's court would be present. Well, David says, here's what we'll do. I won't go. Tell him that I didn't go because I have a family sacrifice back in Bethlehem. If he's okay with that excuse, then we know that I'm safe. But if he's not okay with it, then there must be a reason why he's not okay with it because he's trying to kill me. So let's put together this plan, and that way I can get you, Jonathan, to see what I'm seeing. Or, Jonathan, you can get me to see what you think you're seeing. And so they put this plan together, and they enact the plan at the the new moon festival. First day, Saul doesn't say anything. He just thinks to himself, well, if David's not here, even though he's in in my court, uh, he must just be unclean. Maybe he touched a dead body. Different ways that you can be unclean. You killed some animal. Um, There was this whole religious rite, rite of passage, a way of getting right to where you could be a part of religious ceremonies, holy day ceremonies. And this is a holy day, the first day of the month. And so he's just saying, I mean, he must be unclean. That's the only reason he would miss. On the second day, though, Saul becomes a little bit more unnerved. The first indication we see of this is he doesn't call him David. He calls him the son of Jesse, which is kind of like a backhanded comment. Where is the son of Jesse? Reminding us that he had a re- arrangement with David's father for David to be in his court. You might be thinking, so why, why would somebody come back to a court when the guys try to kill him like five times already? Well, just understand, it's not like we, we're free people in America. We get to do whatever we want. <laughs> in that situation, the king has you in his court. There's an agreement between families. You don't necessarily have a choice. So he's thinking, of course he'll be there, but he's not there on the second day. He obviously expects David to be in continued service of his royal court. And he expected him to be there even though he's tried to kill him several times already. Well, while you might be disqualified to be a part of a holy day ceremony, day one, for unclean reasons, there are no such regulations on day two. Day two is not considered a holy day, so to speak. Add to that the fact that if David was unclean on day one, he had enough time to get himself clean by day two. Leviticus chapter 22, 
delineates some certain things you'd have to do. You'd have to wash yourself. You have to do some uh, appropriate sacrifices that would put you back into a purified state before God. A priest was to examine you. But that could all happen. It just takes one day. So if he was unclean, he should have been clean by day two. Why isn't he here? He's a little bit more unnerved. And then we find that Saul fails the test. He fails the test because he values his position more than he values the person of David. He gets angry, and then he tries to manipulate his son into doing exactly what he wants. And I want to go back to verse 30. Maybe we can put that back on the screen and read that together because there are three manipulative motivators here that it might be good for you to jot down and know because they're manipulative motivators that are often used today as well. Let's go back to verse 30. He says, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You are a son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse at your own shame, and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Three manipulative motivators that he tries to use to get Jonathan, his son, to do what he wants. Number one, guilt. Uh, You haven't been giving me the appropriate loyalty that I deserve. You're forsaking those to whom you owe your appropriate allegiance. He tries to guilt him into doing it. Number two, shame. Your actions affect how others around you are perceived. Because of your actions, you're bringing shame onto your mother's nakedness. Hate to be too graphic, but the literal idea there is likely a reference to exposed genitalia. Uh, You are bringing shame on your family, on your mother. The modern day equivalent expression might be the use of the word bastard. You kind of a situation. So the first one is guilt, trying to guilt him into it. The second one is shame, trying to shame him into a course of action. And the third one is greed. Your actions will affect not only me, but your future, your kingdom. You're supposed to be the heir to the king. You're supposed to be the prince, the king to be. And by your doing this, You're going to lose out on your own ability to rule and to have authority and to reign. You're going to lose your own kingship. So he tries to guilt him into doing what he wants. He tries to shame him into doing what he wants. And then he tries to use greed as the final motivator. Therefore, and he commands him, go get him, bring him back so we can kill him. We have to take him out. What's surprising here is that Jonathan isn't moved by these manipulative motivators. And then Saul tries to kill his own son. Shocker number one, Jonathan sees past all his father's manipulative measures and doesn't fall victim to them. In fact, he goes, why Why should he die? What did he do wrong? He defends him. Shocker number two is that Saul, at the very least, is willing to take out his own son for siding with David. In Saul's mind, Jonathan and David had merged into one, and it's as if he's willing to kill them both. Kill them both. How do you know if you've passed the test of faithfulness in your life, if, you, if you're 
You're willing to put position over people. You see, hidden underneath the mound of self-mindedness was the opportunity for Saul to value David as a person, but he couldn't see past his position. I want what I want. I value being an authority. I value my ability to have my, make my own choices, to be sovereignly in charge, to, 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 to be the one who controls everything. I, I don't want to lose my position. I like the godness of what I'm doing. God is a sovereign one. He's the one who has the master plan. He's the one who truly is in charge. And yet Saul can't get past it. He enjoys that himself. In fact, he's so desirous of that, and that's become like a small g God of his life, that he's willing to put a person in the crosshairs. If, 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 if taking you out of the scenario allows me to remain in charge, then I'm willing to do that. The position is more important to me than the person. And so he doesn't pass a test. He fails it. How can you know if you're passing the test of faithfulness in your life? We saw the first one. Now the second, if you value justness over self-preservation. You could say uh, this way, if you value rightness over self-preservation, you could even use the word justice if you'd like. If you value justice over self-preservation, I like the word justness. You value what is just more than you value your own self-preservation. We're going to see that in verses 34 through 42, and then we're going to apply this to our lives. Verse 34 says, Then Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food on the second day of the month, even though it was a festival. Why? For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field to the appointment uh, with David, with a little boy, and he said to this boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place where the arrow, of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called to the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called out for the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. In fact, I'd love for you to highlight that, underline that, and, and circle that. Hurry, be quick, and do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, and the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew what was the matter, what was going on. And uh, Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them into the city. And so, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face on the ground, bowed three times, and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because you have sworn, we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. How can you know if you pass the test of faithfulness in your life, if you value justness, rightness, justice over self-preservation? Jonathan, uh, mad and grieved, and acts the agreed-upon plan, which is to go to the festival. Dave's not going to be at the festival if 
If Saul gets mad, then you are to send a message back saying that I'm not safe. If he doesn't get mad, then you are to send a message back that I am safe. And the way they set this up, if you remember last chapter, was I'll shoot some arrows, you'll be hiding. Uh, And if I send a servant boy out and I say, hey, go go further, the arrows that are shot are further than you, then that was a message to David that he's to leave, go. But if I say, hey, come nearer, the, the, I think you, you missed it. You, you, you ran past the arrows or nearer, then that would mean to David that he could come near. He's safe. And so they enact this plan, and now it's time for Jonathan to reveal, send a message back to David. And it's interesting, he does a step further than they ever described at the beginning of the plan. He tells the boy, hey, go further, go further. So that means you need to leave. But he actually adds a subliminal message to David in the process. I ask you to highlight it, to underline it, circle it. Hurry, be quick, don't stay. That message wasn't for the servant boy. That message was for David. Hurry, be quick, don't stay. You're not safe. I now agree with you, David. My dad is trying to kill you, even willing to kill me in the process if he has to. Uh, You can leave now in an honorable way. You haven't defied or defiled our friendship and our covenant with each other. I now see what you see. I'm with you. I'm on your team. Jonathan and David embrace. They say goodbye, remembering a covenant that they've made towards one another in the name of the Lord. Now, when you take that in, I wish you would think to yourself, think best friends that know that they are not likely to see each other again. Soul brothers who completely love each other, have the same purpose and cause in life, but know they're not going to see each other again. They very likely will never get to have a meal again. They were so close, and yet this is goodbye, and we don't have that much time. We know that they got to see each other one time briefly before Jonathan would die. And there's still several, maybe two decades before that would happen. Think friends that know that they have a long journey to survive and they won't be able to rely on each other. They won't be able to lean on each other for advice or the ability to hold each other up as they're walking in the same direction. They have to do this apart from each other. They have to do this alone. David's whole life would change. He would be no no longer welcome at the palace, no longer welcome amongst the army of Israel that used to parade him around, sing songs and chant about his victories, no longer welcome in his own home. David would become a fugitive, literally hiding in caves for the next 20 years, trying trying to steer clear of Saul so he doesn't die And really, that's a service to Saul. I'm trying to help you not do something that you atrociously want to do. All the while, never saying, I'm going to go kill the king and rid myself of this problem. Ironically enough, David would never be welcomed again at the king's table, and yet the grandson of the king would be welcome at David's table when he becomes king, according to 2 Kings chapter 9. David and Jonathan would be physically separated from one another, but inseparably joined by an oath they swore on the Lord's name.
The amazing thing of this story is how Jonathan is able to say, you know, rather than think motivationally of things that would be self-preserving, I mean, if we just take out David, I get to become king. And becoming king is a pretty good deal. But being able to see past all that and say, no, what's right here, what is just here, what is God glorifying here, is that God has chosen this man. And if he hasn't chosen me, that's fine. Then let the man that God's chosen be king. And I don't have to get in his way. And I'm even willing to put myself in harm's way with my own dad to defend that, because that's right. It's pretty amazing how he's able to see what is just and right over even his own self-preservation. Trusting that God would take care of him and take care of his family. I want to ask a question of the text that I think maybe a lot of us wrestle with individually in our lives and maybe in our families as we go through life. And here's the question I want to ask. Why did God allow David to suffer for so long? Why did God allow David to suffer for so long? Why did he have to wait 20 years to be king? Why, why, why was that existence living in caves and eating? He used to be at the royal table. Why did God allow David to suffer for so long? And alone, for that matter. And we can ask that question not only of David, but some other figures in the Bible, like Job, like Joseph, like Paul of the New Testament, like Jesus Christ. Why does he allow the suffering? And I want to answer that in three different ways. It might be a good idea to write this down. Number one, it taught David to depend on God and depend on God alone. When you go through suffering, it teaches us to depend on God and to depend on God alone. You're not going to be able to depend on Jonathan here, your best friend, your wife, family. No, no not even your very sustenance, your everyday meal is going to have to be dependent upon God, number one. Number two, it taught him to let God be his defense and his promoter. There's only one person who can defend me now on my own. So God's going to defend me. There's only one person who can promote my name or preserve my reputation. It's God. He's the one. I'll just have to walk through this, and God will be the one to make this clear to everybody what's actually going on here. Taught him to let God be his defense and his promoter. And number three, it taught him to submit to God's authority. I'm not in charge of my life. I'm not in charge of the order of things in my life. Sure, God has a throne for me, apparently, eventually. But right now, in these 20 years, there's difficulty. And you know what? That's okay, because he's in charge. It taught him to submit to God's authority in his life. Not his own authority, not his own timing, but God's authority in his timing and for the glory of God. In the words of Alan Redpath, the writer of the book, Making the Making of a Man of God, a throne is God's purpose for you. A cross is God's path for you. And faith is God's plan for you. Let me say that again in case you're going through it right now. You're going through a season of suffering. You feel alone. Hear this. A throne is God's purpose for you. A cross is God's path for you. And faith is God's plan for you. 
He may have a throne for you, but in the process of getting there, you might have to carry a cross, and the only thing that'll get you through is faith, that he knows what he's doing. I met a gentleman last week in our church, came up to me and he said, uh, Pastor, I just wanted to meet you. I, I came out of a, I don't want to go into specifics, but I went, came out of a long history of, of doing things I shouldn't be doing. I'm, I, I'm now making the right changes and moving in the right direction. And uh, while that feels good and I know that I'm doing the right thing, it's lonely right now. There may be a lot of relationships that I can no longer participate in. There may be uh, places and environments I have to avoid now. So it's a little lonely right now. A little difficult right now in going through this. And isn't it good to know that God has a throne for you? There may be a cross to carry in the process and your faith will get you through it. So you keep on walking on that page. Well, this brings us to our big idea, which I think um, resonate. Faithful relationships often come at a cost. Faithful relationships often come at a cost. We can see that in the entire storyline of, 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 of this chapter. When you dive deeper in the storyline, story through the lens of faithfulness and relationships, what do you find? Uh, Jonathan loses out on a close relationship with his father and the royal line to the throne because he wanted to be faithful to David. You see, faithful relationships often come at a cost. David puts himself in harm's way, risking his own life in order to come back to Jonathan to convince him that his only option was to flee, not wanting to leave in an unhonorable way. He, he did it to prove faithful to his relationship with Jonathan rather than running away quickly and ma making it look like it was a rejection of some sort. You see, faithful relationships come at a cost. Even Saul finds himself losing relationship with his son, his daughter, the Lord, in his quest for authority, influence, sovereign reign over his life, something that really should be attributed only to God. To be faithful in relationship to your small g, God, comes often at a cost as well. You can have it on either side of the dilemma. Whatever you want to be faithful to, it'll come at a cost. But for our purposes, faithfulness, faithful relationships often come at a cost. Friendship can come at a cost. Family relationships can come at a cost. Being faithful in your marriage or to your marriage vows can come at a cost. Let me see if I can describe what I mean in a way that you can relate to. You know, being a pastor is an interesting job. Shepherd of God's flock. It's an interesting job. We're kind of called to, to be there when difficulty arises. To run towards the mess. And you do it for any amount of time, there's not a lot of things that surprise you anymore. People often lament that, oh, pastor, I wish you didn't know this about my family. I wish you didn't know this about my marriage. I wish you didn't know this about my life. I thought I, was, I had this one picture, and now that picture is destroyed, and it looks different. I wish you didn't know this about my kids, which, all these type of things. And we're not allowed to say, oh, this is nothing. Let me tell you a story about Susie. <laughs> Sam over here. Oh, man, you don't even know. This is not child's play. We can't do that not allowed to do that. We step in when life gets messy. We step in, and often there's a cost. Like when a wife finally steps to her husband and says, I got to let you know the drinking has to stop. And if it doesn't, we're going to have to separate. 
We're, we see it when the threat of separation isn't for the sake of permanent separation or divorce, but for the sake of sparing the marriage. We also see it when the husband takes the opportunity to wander off into wickedness. Oh, you don't want me? That's fine. I'll find someone else who doesn't require of me the appropriate changes that I need to make for you and this family. Then we step up and mop up duty to the wife and mother and the children. Why would God allow this to happen? All I can tell you is this situation will teach you how to depend on God alone. This situation will teach you to let God be your defense and your promoter when everybody else is looking at you cross-eyed about the decisions you might have made and how you handled it. And this situation will teach you to submit to God's authority. This wife and mother who has been faithful to her relationships knows something about what it means to do so at a cost. Faithful relationships often come at a cost. How do you know if you're passing the test? Never value position over people. Always value justness, right, rightness, righteousness, justice over self-preservation. Always know along the way that to be faithful to relationship will likely come at a cost. There's no better example of this than our salvation. You see, God wanted a relationship with us. And he wanted it so bad that he was able to give up his own son to die on the cross for the sin of the world. The son would say to the father, I'm willing to be separated from you just as far as you separate sin east from the west. Will I be, in a sense, separated from you as you place the weight of the world of sin on my shoulders? Faithful relationships comes at a cost. And the cost was the Son of God dying on the cross for our sin. That's how God was faithful to us in relationship to us. You may be here and you're wondering what your first step is in your spiritual journey. I will just tell you, and you might take time to process this. It doesn't happen to happen today. But when the time is right, your first step is to put your faith in Jesus Christ, the work of Christ on the cross, his death his burial, and his resurrection. You put your faith in that, you claim it verbally, and the scripture says you'll be saved. God comes inside you and makes you a different person. That's what's available to you when the time is right for you. But make no mistake, the faithfulness of our relationship with God came at a great cost. Why don't you bow your head and close your eyes with me as we close out. I just know there's some people, because I, again, I'm a pastor, this is what I do. I know there's people going through a lot of things right now. And you're wondering, why did you place me here? What, where, I thought it was a throne, but all I see is a cross. And he says, do you have faith? Faithful relationship comes at a cost. And you might be experiencing the cost right now, but your job is to be faithful, remain faithful. Father, we love you. You've modeled this in the very sacrifice of your son. Help us model it in the sacrifice that we give back to you that is our lives. May you be honored 
in our decisions individually and in our decisions corporately as a church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor David, with that awesome message. Hey, if you're here today, Pastor David just mentioned putting your faith in Jesus Christ. If you just did that for the first time, um, I think the most important next step would be to let someone know what God's doing in your life. Um, we have people in the lobby at the counter on the left-hand side who you can talk to after the service. If you want to let them know, hey, God's doing something. I just surrendered my life. I put my trust in Jesus. If you're joining us online today, go to campcc.net, click on next steps at the top of the page, and you can fill out a little form there. One of our pastors will get back to you. We want to be part of this journey with you. You know, David mentioned this, um, that what David was learning through this was to put his full trust in God. You know, uh, as we move into a time of worship through giving, I think that's what we're learning through giving as well. Um, the attitude God desires for us is this attitude where we feel and acknowledge that everything good in our life comes from God. Our income, our everything is His. Um, the air we breathe, the ability to work, all that is given to us by the Lord and is a blessing. And when we give, we're giving back to Him, just saying, God, you're number one. I'm going to do what your word says. And I'm just acknowledging that this is yours anyways. You gave it to me. I'm just giving part of it back. That's kind of the attitude. So if that's the one you have and you want to participate in giving, there's three ways to do it. As you can see on your screen, go to campcc.net, click give, text the amount you'd like to donate to 84321, or there's an offering box in the lobby. All the ministry this is supported through the generosity of God's people. So thank you for doing that. And before we go today, let's check out what's coming up next on this video. CAMCC, I'm Chelsea Hernandez and I oversee activities for young families in our church. We are so glad you are here today. If you want more info on young families, you can email me at youngfamilies@camcc.net, and I'll keep you in the loop. If today is your first time with us, welcome. If it's your second time, we are so glad to have you back. If you are a first time guest, we have a $5 Starbucks gift card for you. Fill out our connection card or scan this QR code with your phone's camera and let us know you filled it out digitally. You can also put your prayer request on that card as well. If this is your second visit, let us know and you'll get a $10 gift card to In-N-Out Burger. We will also invite you to our all-you-can-eat dessert with our pastors, elders, and staff. If you're watching online, go to camcc.net slash next steps to go through the guest process. There are great things coming up at CamCC. Be thinking about who you will invite. Tuesday, October 31st, Trunk or Treat, 6 to 8 p.m. We want you to invite your friends, family, neighbors, coworkers for a night of fun. There will be creative trunks, a dance party, family photos, a candy cannon, and tons of candy. We really need trunks and volunteers to pull this off. If you can serve in any capacity, we need you. We can also share with you the areas we need to make this a success in our community. Come serve and come hang out at Trunk or Treat. Contact Sam at camcc.net for more info. The month of November, we'll be kicking off a new community impact initiative. More details to come. To stay in the loop of what is going on at CamCC, Follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. For more info on any of these events, go to camcc.net. My name is Christine Benson, and I'm part of the Young Adults Ministry here at Camp CC. Something I got out of the message was, God's plan for us is faith. Don't forget, 
It's not too late to sign up for Trunk or Treat. You can still sign up in the patio. We love to come see you this Tuesday for Trunk or Treat. Don't forget to grab donuts and coffee on your way out. If you need prayer for anything, please know that there is a prayer team ready to pray over you after the service. Thank you. See you all Tuesday.